spoke, I talked about what's probably one of the biggest highlights in the Apostle Peter's life. That was the time when he got it right. How many of you remember times when you got it right? Yeah? Maybe far and few between, but we get it right, and it's just a great feeling, isn't it? Jesus had the disciples there at Caesarea Philippi. He turns to Peter and he says, whom do you say I am? He asks that leading question, whom do you say I am? And Peter might have looked at the other disciples and was like, well, I'm going to give this a go. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And, and, and Jesus looks at Peter, and it must have been a real look of admiration when he said, you're right, Peter. You're right. And that was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. That was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. You know, so that was a, a huge moment. That was an A plus for Peter, wasn't it? He got this right. But not only that, Jesus then turns to him and he says, and you, Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And what I explained last week, just how significant those words were, because indeed Peter is being used as a foundation stone for the church as we understand it even today. And so here's Peter. He's on a roll. He's like high-fiving all the disciples, like, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man, you know? And not only am I the man, I'm the man that get the keys. You know, if you guys had answered that question, you might have the keys, but I get them because I answered the question, all right? But what we know is that life has lots of unexpected consequences in lots of different ways. And when you least expect it, things can get turned upside down really quickly, can't they? Yeah. And sometimes in our lives, we've been cruising along and something fails. You know, failure, failure is a learning opportunity if we allow it to be a learning opportunity. And sometimes the things that we don't like become... Uh, great ways in which we can grow or great ways in which God draws our attention to things. C.S. Lewis said that pain is God's way of drawing attention to us. And that's true because if you've got something painful happening in your body, it's the body's way of saying, hey, listen, you need to give some attention to this. That's fair to say, isn't it? We don't like it. Didn't say I had to like it. But it is a grace because if we didn't have pain, we wouldn't know that there was something wrong. Uh, this, the, the world over centuries has been cursed with leprosy. One of the worst things about leprosy is that it dulls all the nerves. And so people will cut themselves, they will burn themselves, and they don't even know this is happening. Quite literally, people will hear their own, smell their own flesh singeing, and they look down and they realize that, it's, that they're burning up. So pain is a blessing, but only if you turn it around to take advantage of it and use the learning curve that it is. Um, Whenever there is failure, it draws our attention to what it is that we need to correct. Back in 1986, I was living in the UK, and I can remember uh, one morning before I went to work, um, I think I'd done a shift overnight, so I was a bit late getting out of bed, and I turned the telly on, and they were showing the uh, NASA Space Shuttle, Space Shuttle Challenger, and it's launch, and up it goes, and it's like, wow, and it's like, boof. It's not supposed to happen. Failure, failure, lost a lot of people's lives. But what it did was it took that whole program up to a whole new level, a whole new standard of uh, integrity with respect to what it was aiming to achieve and the science and behind that. And so in our lives, when we go through struggles, when we go through failures, we need to stop and ask ourselves, what is going on here? Is this a relational failure? Is this a lack of knowledge? Is it a lack of will? Lack of intention? 
in our Christian life? Is this a lack of understanding the will of God, understanding uh, what God is leading us into? And so therefore, all these failures are meant to help us grow into the image of Christ. You know, correction, this is really important, correction is not rejection. Okay, correction is not rejection. And yet strangely enough, and I think it's because of our fallen nature that we inherited through Adam, is that whenever we get corrected, we feel rejected at the same time. There's just something in there that says you're wrong, therefore you're incomplete, or therefore I reject you. That's not true. Correction is a loving act. And we've got to make sure that we don't confuse correction for being something less than what it is, a loving act. You know, when you dive in and pull a child's finger out of the electricity socket, that is a loving act, isn't it? You know? You don't just stand there and watch them go, saying, oh, you'll learn, you'll learn. You know, you should, well, you shouldn't do that anyway. Okay. So let's have a look at where Peter heads after this high-five moment, because this is a fascinating, fascinating thing. That happens to Peter, and I would suggest it's not unusual for us either. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Okay, this is just after Jesus had affirmed what Peter had said. Yes, he is the Christ, and that in itself was filled with promise filled with promise of what that would do for the world, that what that would do for Israel. And yet, almost within the same breath, Jesus moves on to this conversation, explaining that he's got to be taken to the religious leaders of the day, handed over, and be put to death. And it's, this, it's these, these imperatives that he puts in here that are really the critical part of this conversation. When he says that he must, he says that he must twice in that passage. He must be handed over to the Pharisees, and he must be put to death. Now, when you are Peter or one of the disciples, and you're listening to this conversation, there's two things going on. You're listening to what Jesus is describing with respect to his own destiny, his own outcomes. He's going to die. But you are a disciple. You are a follower. And when you are a disciple, when you are a follower, the rabbi that you follow is somebody whom you invest your life into the point where you, you reproduce everything that they do and everything that they are. When Jesus said to his disciples, follow me, it was in the same tradition as other rabbis of that period of time who said, when you follow me, you will come and you will do everything that I do. You'll wear the same clothes as me. You'll speak with the same words as me. You'll eat the same food. You'll sleep where I sleep. You'll wash where I wash. The whole idea was to mirror the rabbi. And so when Jesus is there saying, well, this is my destiny, I'm going to be persecuted and ultimately killed, there's an undercurrent here that flows into those disciples which says, and this is going to be your destiny as well. So we can understand, we can understand, can't we, that this would have invoked more of a response than just simply sucks to be you, which is what we think when we read it. Because here's Peter going, oh, Jesus is going to uh, be killed. And we look at it and go, poor Peter. He must be really sad. He's going to lose a friend. 
That's the way we look at it because we don't understand the discipleship culture that existed in that day. What Peter was saying is the way the master goes is the way that we will go. So, of course, his response is to push back. Now, let's just jump forward uh, about five decades from here, six decades, to when Peter's life ends. Peter does have his life taken from him in the same manner as Jesus. He too is crucified in Rome. But instead of being crucified in the normal way, Peter goes to those who killed him and said, I cannot be killed in the same fashion that my Lord did. And so they literally crucified him on a cross upside down. Wicked, eh? Just terrible, the Romans. So here is something going on in Peter's life, which is the beginning, a seed that's being planted of what his destiny is going to be. And it's no surprise to us then that Peter's response to Jesus saying, I'm going to die, is this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Hold on. Isn't this the same Jesus who just a moment ago was commending Peter? Only God revealed that, that to you, my son. And by the way, we're going to build our church on you. And just a few breaths later, he's saying, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. And people balk at this because the language is really, really intense. The language is very aggressive. And, and I just got to say, look, sometimes we, we like the Jesus who's sitting in the cradle, eh? The little meek and mild Jesus, you know, sort of goo-goos at you and smiles. And we'll go, oh, lovely. But this is the same Jesus who's already been in the temple and cleared all the money changers out by creating a whip and, and hooking into them. Yeah. So we see that there is this other masculine side of Jesus, which we have to allow freedom to be, even within our understanding of, his, of, of what we are to follow him. Okay. So Jesus is, is very masculine. He's very strong. He's very intentional. He knows what he's about. And when he's trying to correct somebody, he's not wanting to reject them, but he's just trying to make them understand completely what the program is. Say, this isn't about me being your good friend. This isn't about us just having a great time together and all getting a kick out of learning new stuff or seeing God perform miracles. This is a plan for your life that has a destiny, but it also has a journey. And that journey is going to, we'll see in a moment, the way of the cross. So, Jesus calls Peter a, um, a stumbling block, which is an unusual term, really, because I don't think people manufactured stumbling blocks. I mean, like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I make stumbling blocks. Okay. Oh, I make concrete bricks. Oh, right. Okay. See, stumbling blocks are often hidden. They are small. They can't often be seen, because if they were seen, they wouldn't deceive us and they wouldn't trip us up. Um, some, uh, some four years ago, um, my wife, Mikaela, and I did this walk across Spain, uh, the Camino, and um, I was walking across this desert area, and, um, and we were just doing our own thing, backpack on, walking away, and I saw this English guy and his daughter, he was about the same age as me, um, and I saw them just sitting down having their lunch, and we were just walking towards them, and I go, hi, how's it going? I just fell over. I just went, 
straight on my face, pack on my back. And I was, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, in the cartoons that you see on TV, when someone falls over and their legs go, and then they go, bang, that didn't happen. And I was just like, there. I was like, how did I get down here? You know, I'm blowing dust. My legs are covered in dirt. My hands have got skin off them, you know. And this guy comes running over and he goes, are you all right, sir? And I'm like, don't call me sir. They only call old men, sir. <laughs> Here I was lying in the dust like some old guy who couldn't walk properly. Picks me up and, and I look back and I'm like, I got no idea what I stumbled on. But there was something there, obviously, wasn't there? The thing about a stumbling block is that it's something that calls you to fall over, it stops your progress, or it redirects you, or it injures you, or it takes you out in some fashion. Jesus is saying to Peter, you can become a stumbling block to me, which is really quite weird, isn't it? Because he's the son of God saying, you, mere flesh and blood, could become a stumbling block to me. What he's saying here is that this program that I have, you have to get on board with it. Otherwise, this is going to get more and more difficult. And so, Jesus is letting the disciples into this program, helping them understand what it is that he is calling them to. So let's just have a look at this word stumbling block for a minute, because I think there are some things here that we need to, um, close to some water, some things here that we need to get our heads around. Um, <clears throat> stumbling blocks look like um, things that are obvious, but they're not. They're things that exist within our own homes. And it can be the relationship between parents and children. You see, I've raised with my wife three children, and um, we knew that we were raising our kids for God. We weren't raising them for ourselves. Um, and so therefore, whatever possibilities existed within respect to what God wanted for their lives, we were there to try to affirm that. And as parents, it can be very easy to sort of have this subconscious bias about what it is that you want your children to do or be. We feed them, we clothe them, we give them shelter, we give them education, and then we have them moving into some sort of framework of expectation that we usually are affirming because we see their gifts and their strengths. But what happens when your child comes home and says, wow, I was so inspired at church today. I, I feel like I, I need to train to give my life to missions overseas. Oh, ooh, okay. Or something really freaky, like, I think God's calling me to be a pastor. It's like, why would you want to do that? Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, if you do, come, I'll come pray for you. What I'm saying in this is that we can hold our kids back from what God's potential is for them because we have limits. You know, we might send our children off to even locally here, we might send them off to good Christian education. Um, but the idea that they'd want to actually do something crazy, like give their life to overseas mission, can be something that we hold them back from, because it's like, well, yes, Christianity is a great thing, but don't take it too seriously, you know? Now, none of you are going to nod your head and go, yeah, that's me, I know that. But subconsciously, this is what happens. I've had the conversations with parents. And when I've put the finger on them, I've said, so what you're telling me is that you're wanting your child to grow, to be a professional, earn enough money so they too can own a house in the suburbs and be an honest, 
taxpayer. No. Yeah, but they'll be Christians. Yeah, but there might be something that God has for them. Might be something that God really has for them that you have to avoid getting in the way of. Does it make sense? It's really hard. Because when your children go off and say, I'm going to live a life of faith, you don't have any ability to control that. You don't have any ability to even give them insight necessarily into what that's going to look like. Because anyone who's born to the Spirit is like the wind and no one knows where that is coming or going. Yeah? Okay. Friend to friends. Friends can become stumbling blocks. Why? Because the moment that a friend stands up, well, not even stands up, sits down at your table and says, hey, look, um, I'm thinking of doing this with my money and this is going to have a huge kingdom response or kingdom result. The friend at the other end of the table is immediately challenged by that. Because like, well, you and I do similar work. That's why we like each other. We've got similar values. And now you're telling me you're going to do what? All of a sudden I'm threatened by that because there's a level of discipleship or change that's going on in your life, which is the way of the cross. And I liked you the way you were. Does that make sense? Yep. All this stuff is the subtle stuff that happens around our tables all the time. And so friend to friend, you can, you can end up in this sort of strange scenario where you've got your best friend in front of you and you're actually subvertly, subvertly stopping them achieving the will of God in their lives. <clears throat> what about grandparents? Grandparents love their kids being close. They would hate for their kids to take their grandparents, grandchildren off to the mission field. I had an interesting conversation with um, David Pierce about seven or eight years ago. David turns up here every year. He's a part of a ministry called Steiger International where they, they have music, they have bands that go and take the gospel message through music to an emerging generation around the world. And I remember having lunch with David, and he goes, you know, um, I'm getting quite a bit of pressure now since we've become grandparents that we should stop touring with the band and uh, I should be there to look after with my wife, our, our grandchildren, which are, you know, our quiver is being filled up, so to speak, biblical term. And he says, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's a lot of pressure. And I said, look, Dave, a lot of folks have this sense in which they need to see their grandchildren. So they stop what they do to be there to be seen by their grandchildren or to see their grandchildren. I said, what's more important, that you see your grandchildren or that your grandchildren see you? Traveling the world, sharing the gospel. That is going to have a bigger influence on their lives than you playing cuddly toys with them. And so we talk about this when we meet, you know, we, we chat about it because it was, a, it was just one of those unique conversations where I, I may have had a word from God from, you know, so it happens once a decade. So here it was, he got it. But families, what I'm saying, like close friends, can be the ones who get in the way of you reaching what it is that God has given you to reach. So <clears throat> Jesus says this, then whoever said, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
uh, hold on, we're just getting through the stumbling stone bit. That was hard enough. Now you're telling me you've got to take up the cross. Well, let's put this in the right perspective. When Jesus talks about taking up the cross, he's drawing imagery from something that they would have already seen or experienced, and that is Roman soldiers forcing criminals who have been sentenced to death to carry that wooden cross, we saw Jesus do it, to that place where they would be crucified and put to death. So the imagery that Jesus is using right now is imagery that is pretty confronting. It's like, okay, so I've got to follow you, but I'm carrying this cross as I follow you. What's the symbolism behind that? Well, it means that we're putting to death the things of the world. Now, when you talk about language of take up the cross, today it's, it's a bit meaningless, really. Because, you know, we all wear crosses around our necks. But let me say, um, if I was doing a new line of jewellery out in the foyer for the building project, fundraising, a new line of jewellery which raises this whole understanding of, of uh, carrying your cross to a 21st century level. So if I was doing a line in um, little miniature guillotines and hangman's nooses that you can buy and you can wear those around your neck, how would people feel about that? They'd think that's strange, wouldn't they? Well, that's how the disciples would have felt about this when Jesus said, you've got to carry your cross. You've got to carry the means of putting to death your will, putting to death your worldly aspirations on a daily basis. Take up your cross and follow me. In other words, you can follow me, but you've got to put to death all this other stuff that is going to hold you back from serving me. And remember, Peter's already been rebuked. He's a stumbling block because he has in mind the things of man, not the things of God. Why? Because probably quite simply, Peter wanted to preserve his own life and he didn't want his good buddy Jesus to have his days finished before Peter was finished playing with him. So, where are we on this continuum? Well, I don't know about you, but I, I find myself carrying my cross put it down, pull the back, play in the sandpit, pick up the cross a little bit further, get distracted. That's life. And that's why our failures should not be counted against us. And that is why correction is not rejection. We're all on this continuum of learning what it means to be a disciple. So let's summarize this. The reason why we're called to the cross and the reason why we're called to lay our lives down is because we're part of something bigger than ourselves. We're called to a higher purpose. The simple truth is that when we're born into planet Earth, God has a plan and a purpose for us through his son Jesus. But we don't know that yet. The purpose and the plan has always been there. Um, I'm always intrigued by uh, the historians that talk about the explorers who left Europe to discover what they called the new world. Well, that's misrepresented, isn't it? It's not a new world. It's always been there. It's only new to you. And so it is with the will of God and this whole understanding of eternal life. It's always been part of the deal. We're spiritual beings living in jars of clay. Spiritual beings living in jars of clay. And we discover this when we're born again. And we discover that there is a purpose greater than the one that you've been given by 
the New Zealand society to fulfil, where you are told to be educated, good, moral, tax-paying citizens and then die quietly, as long as you pay your taxes. That's sort of the summary of what most governments want from their citizens, because it allows for a peaceful life for everybody. But we're called to be subversive, bringing the word of God, bringing the person of Jesus into people's lives. And that means that we are going to be confronted by principalities and powers. They're going to say, you've got to do life our way, not your way. And the reality is that as we do Jesus' life, the way of the cross, it's going to cost you. Okay? It'll cost you. And the critical thing about what it'll cost you will be um, your reputation. Your reputation, because once you announce that you're a follower of Jesus, you get yoked with him. You get yoked with all the history. You get yoked with what's in the newspaper this week. And you get yoked with every other Christian that's crossed that person's path. So your identity is wrapped up in the person of Jesus and all that that means throughout history. And that can be challenging at times, can't it? You know, there are, there are certain things happening in the world at the moment where they're digging out institutional evil out of institutions that have had a lot of history with respect to child abuse and the like. And we go, oh, man, these are the times when I, I wish I wasn't connected because it's a bit embarrassing. It's a bit tough. For me, uh, personally, you know, when I accepted the call to become um, a church pastor, my life my identity and my reputation got intimately entwined with the person of Jesus. And that's, that's great. I love that. But it means that I pay the price for that because you know, somebody can have a real problem in their life and they think that God is disappointing them. Well, they take it out on me because I'm the easiest one to target, you see. Um, I, you know, I know that my old, my old mates, uh, they've got different names for me that they call me. Um, some are funny if you want to laugh at them, you know. But it's all about your identity being wrapped up in, in Christ. And um, I'm not, not worried about that, but it's one thing that we realize that we've got to accept when we become Christians is that the way of the cross is that we lose, we lose our, uh, our, our reputation. Now, in society, every generation has got a definition of what it means to be cool. And Christians sort of can fall in this trap of saying, well, I want to be a follower of Jesus and I want to be cool, okay? And so we live this fine line and the idea that we might be able to become one to win one, it doesn't actually work very well, okay? Now, when I was a young fella um, <laughs> uh, in the 70s, you know, disco was cool. Is like that move? It's, it's as good as it gets. Um, to be cool was the guy who wore the dark sunglasses in the nightclub. You know the guys walk around like this. And then they go and sit in the corner of the room or stand in the corner of the room and just... Cool, man. It took me five years to catch on. The reason why they stand there and look like that is because they can't see a thing. <laughs> They're just like... I don't know what's going on. Can't see anybody, but if I stand here and look intimidating, no one will talk to me. I'm cool. So cool today is to have followers on Instagram. Okay? So you've got to die to that. You know? The idea of being discovered. 
you know? We're going to die to that. The idea of being an influencer. You know, unless you're doing it for Jesus, you've got to die for that, die to that, or you'll die for that, to be quite honest. People sell their souls to be loved, and yet Jesus says, my way is the way of the cross. And we've got to keep reminding each other that this is the way we're called to live. Just tell your friends, is, or ask them, is this the way of the cross? Is this the way that Jesus would have us live? Is this putting Jesus' values first? Or is this somehow enhancing our own reputation rather than that of the kingdom? So we're going to finish up now. But um, for those of you who are doing the studies with us, um, you'll find that this week's study is about the next event that happens with Peter, and that's the Mount of Transfiguration, when heaven appears to earth, right? But Jesus rounds out this conversation that we've just been looking at now with these words. And I think that, well, I think they're good. They're from God. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, for all that I have to say to you today, you're going to have a revelation of what this world is all about. And uh, if you read on from Matthew 17, you find that Jesus and Peter and John uh, head up to um, the Mount of Transfiguration and there Elijah and Moses appear in their heavenly bodies and Jesus is in his heavenly bodies. And these guys are like, wow, okay, now I'm starting to get it. Now I'm starting to understand that what I see is not what I get, but what I understand by looking at life through the word of God and through through Jesus' eyes, is really what our world is all about. A spiritual world where putting to death the things of this world aren't a huge deal compared to eternity. And that's what we're all about, isn't it? So I'm going to um, just ask us to stand now. Um, we're going to pray. Um, and I think... The music team, are you there? Yep. Why don't you guys go and eat some soup and some rolls? We'll give you a break. Praise the Lord. Okay, see. Good on you, Darren. Because um, we'll, um, we'll finish our service here, eh? Is that all right? You okay with that? Okay. And because the way of the cross is others first, sacrifice, love, you'll all allow others to go first in the line to get the soup, won't you? Is that all right? That'll really, that'll really mess with your heads now I've said that, won't it? But let me pray. Father, we thank you that uh, as, we, as we read Scripture, we discover not only the, the way of Jesus and the way that Peter was called to follow, but we, we get confronted with ourselves, who we are. And that in itself is a, is a real challenge. But Lord, I, I just take great heart in the fact that correction isn't rejection, that you love us enough to challenge us to change. You love us enough to allow us to put down the things of this world, to pick up the things of the kingdom of God. And we, we're so grateful that we get to see this transition happening in Peter's life because it tells us that we too are capable of doing the same thing. And sometimes people like Peter seem to have come from further back than we even have in the understanding of what it means to serve you. God, we, um, we also don't want to be a stumbling block. We don't want to be a stumbling block to those around us, those who we influence the most, our family, 
our friends. We don't want to get in the way of what you're doing in the lives of children or grandchildren, uh, friends, neighbors, where you are working specifically in their lives to release them into something unique. And so, God, we, we just want to be a part of building that momentum in other people's lives, not being a stumbling block for them. So, God, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us the ability to build and strengthen and encourage that momentum as we see it, that uh, those around us can be blessed because we believed in what you're doing in their lives. God, we, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is to us. It enlightens our steps and allows us to serve you in a more accurate way. We ask this in Jesus' name. And Lord, bless the food as we eat it. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy the food.